Hey, this is LGBTQ&A. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is a show where we get to know different members of the LGBTQ community. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Michelle Stevens. Dr. Stevens is a psychologist and the author of Scared Selfless, a new memoir about how she triumphed after childhood of sexual abuse and the mental illness it created. Stay tuned. Hello. Hello. It's good to be here. Thank you. Welcome to the show. Thank you. This is very exciting for me. Good. Thank you. I'm glad to chat. You have had quite a life. I have had quite a life, yes. Is that an understatement? Um, you know, when when you're the one living it, it doesn't seem so extraordinary. But when you write it all down in a book, other people start to go, wow, that's quite a life. <laughs> yeah. I can't yeah. imagine this was uh, easy to write. It it was not easy to write. Um, it, it took me twice as long as it was supposed to. Okay. <laughs> and um, it was really hard. Uh, you know, the book is about, the first part of the book at least, is about the abuse that I suffered. And so having to sort of relive all of that um, for months and months as I wrote about it was tough. Yeah, I imagine so. Also, like, I want to be clear to, like, everyone listening and watching that this is not simply a catalog Mm -hmm. of your abuse. Right. Um, As we said, you're a psychologist, and to be able to contextualize it, what happened to you as a mental health professional, just what was going on and the ramifications was uh, profound. Thank you. Yeah, that was my the, the big idea I've ever had in my life. Um, I And I got that idea. You know, the book's a hybrid, basically. It's yeah. a hybrid between a memoir that gives you a very visceral experience of my life and sort of a psychology text, um, that a self-help book sort of thing. Um, and I got that idea. I used to be a high school teacher, and I was teaching the book Night by Elie Wiesel. And the kids would read the book and they'd go, why? Why did this happen? Why did that happen? I don't understand. Why does the father act like that? And I was also teaching a book called A Child Called It, uh, which is about child abuse. And the kids constantly said, why? Why does the mother act like that? Why does the father act like that? And I thought, wow, if I ever write my own story, I'm going to add the, the why. And you did it. And I did it. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, the fact that you like had like all these like amazing statistics, mm-hmm. like your story, yes, it was unique, but like I think it said like one million children suffer abuse like this every year. Well, it's it's staggering. So if you there's all different ways that they try to get the statistics on abuse. I think that the best way is to ask adults, were you ever abused as a child? Because as an adult, you're much more likely to know that you were and have a context for what abuse is. So if you ask adults, were you ever abused as a child, sexually abused, 40% of women will say yes. That's a massive number. That's a massive number. And 13% of men. Wow. Yeah. So a lot, a lot of people are sexually abused. And even if it happens just one time, because of the stigma attached to it and the trust barrier that's broken... It has a profound effect on people. And I think that goes to the fact of like why you felt you had to write this book. Yes, it absolutely does. I I felt that for whatever reason, I was given the sort of fortitude to heal. And not only heal, but somehow understand how I healed and how it affected me. And I really wanted to help other people to understand themselves. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you said like somehow like to figure out how you healed. It was like all of your training. Yeah. As like I, I know that you became a psychologist later in life, mm-hmm. but um, y- to be able, like living through all these things and just seeing, like you said before, like why you behaved a certain way. Right. Um, a big question that I had during the book was um, during the when the abuse was happening and afterward, ha- because a, a big point was 
you leave the home where it's happening mm-hmm. and nothing it doesn't just miracle it's not a miracle no, it doesn't get better no but um, a big question i had was how does someone do anything else in their life how do how do you do schoolwork mm-hmm. how do you bo- form other relationships and that is why when you developed dissociative identity disorder mm-hmm. multiple personality disorder yes i said like oh that makes perfect sense yes yes and it's so interesting because uh, i did develop uh, multiple personalities and which is i don't want to say it's common but it is a sort of the worst symptom from the worst type of sexual abuse that you can get. Um, But it was very protective of me. uh, It it allowed me to sort of compartmentalize in a a grand way the abuse to the point where I didn't know I was being abused and just go to school and think I was a normal kid. And so that allowed me to get through college and things like that. It's almost like... Not, I'm not saying it's healthy, but it's like, like you said, like a protection. It is, yeah. At the time, it it was quite healthy, I think, to be able to dissociate. Had I not been able to dissociate, I think I would probably be a drug addict. I would have to have some sort of chemical way of yeah, avoiding these feelings. Oh, because you need, would find a different way right, to do it. Right, Wow. I also thought it was so fascinating how you said that the multiple personalities are less um, overt. Yes. They're very subtle. Yes, that is one of the things I really wanted to get people to understand. There's a real problem. There's all these myths about multiple personalities. There is a myth that it's incredibly rare, which it's not. Uh, at least 1% of the population, if you look at the research, suffers from it. That's about the same as schizophrenia. We don't think of schizophrenia as rare. Right. Um, There is the myth that it's not real. It is. I know. I have it. Um, And there is the myth that anyone who does have multiple personalities is going to have this very florid, sibyl-esque way of showing it, where they're announcing who they are, what weird name they have in French or something. And that's just not the the case. I've had clients with multiple personalities and it's very subtle. And it's because it's so subtle and and therapists even believe it doesn't exist or is rare that it doesn't get diagnosed. Wow. And I think you wrote too that it's subtle because you develop these to protect yourselves and they're they're very smart. So in order to protect you, they need to be hidden. Right. Correct. Right. If if I was in the middle of being abused by horrible, dangerous people and some other personality popped out and said, hi, I'm Caroline. How is that protective? Right. Right. It's all a, a subtle way that the mind compartmentalizes itself. Wow. Well, um, we keep mentioning your abuse. I, um, do we? Do you mind giving like the brief sketch of what happened? I just don't want people to think that like your father like hit you once, right? Um, right. And not, not that there's like you know <laughs> Th- that's tough too. Yeah, but, yeah, right. yeah. I, yeah, and it's, was, it was an extreme. Yeah. So, so when I was eight years old, um, I, I was, I was born to a single mother who was very poor and uneducated, and when I was eight years old, she got a new boyfriend who happened to be a an elementary school teacher. And he pretended that he was interested in her, but he was a pedophile. He was really interested in me. And as quickly as he could, he got her to move into the house with him so that he could have full access to me. And he was a very sadistic man, and he had it in his head that he was going to make me his sex slave. So uh, he tortured me. And he did. And he did. And that lasted for six years. Yes. And he belonged to, you know, what people call a child sex ring. Nowadays, we call it trafficking. And he trafficked me um, to other men through that ring. He put me into uh, pornography. Um, One of the things that kind of blew me away was how masterful he was in the worst uh, way. Like, he was a professional. And um, 
and again, not to like be like nasty, but like he was so skilled yes. at everything he did. And it's if you talk to any sort of anyone in law enforcement who works with these, I call them career pedophiles. Um, they are very skilled at what they do, and they relish in it. When you read interviews with them, they love. They're con men, you know. They're sociopaths, and they really sociopaths love to con people. It's part of their fun. They love to make the parents think they're the nicest guy in the world while they're raping the child. And how do they find each other? This isn't something that would come up in like normal conversation. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, what I, you know, this was happening to me in the 70s before the internet, um, they would find each other through pornography magazines. There were coded messages, basically, in the classified sections. Oh, so like the same way that like gay men in the 80s and 70s had to find each other. Correct. It's the exact same thing. Nowadays, it's so much easier with the internet. Wow. Um, At at one point in the story, uh, he is arrested or um, charged for like molesting three different children. And they questioned you inauspiciously and you remain in the home. Mm -hmm. That was, as you said, in the early 80s or late 70s. Mm -hmm. Had that happened today, do you think that outcome would have been different? You know, it's hard to say. It's really hard to say. I would like to say it would be different, um, and yet I see cases all the time where I don't think it is different. It's very hard. If you ask a child, were you molested by your by your father, um, they're not just going to tell a stranger yes. It just it hardly ever happens that way. Yeah. Uh, there's just too much at stake. So um, n- I don't know if it would be different today. What do you recommend? Because obviously we cannot wait for every victim to Mm -hmm. say like this happened. What do you recommend people do in that situation? Be it law enforcement or a therapist? You know, and this is, uh, I'm about to write a big piece on this because so many people since the book came out, uh, I've had so many people write to me and say, what do we do? This is terrible that this happens. What do we do? And I always write back the same thing. Criminals don't stop themselves. We have to stop criminals. And these same people who will say, oh, my God, that's terrible what happened to you. Um, if they see it happening, if if they see their uncle come out of the bedroom with a li- that was locked with a little girl inside, the, the, what people want to do is look the other way. Yeah. They don't want to go, my God, what is that? Did he just molest her? Because that's icky. When it's in your face, when it's right up close and it's someone you know, you don't want to believe it. Yeah. And 90% of, of child molestations are someone that the kid already knows. It's not strangers doing this. It's uncles and brothers and fathers and teachers and coaches. Wow. With the... That's... That's wild, the n- yeah. that 90% number. Yeah. And I think that like a massive lesson from the book regarding this was that, no, it might not leave physical marks on the children, mm-hmm. but there are always signs. Yes. Yes. You were talking about like suicide and like writing explicit poems and drawing mm-hmm. pictures. And the fact that it was ignored by teachers that read that, I found equally horrifying. What I have found more horrifying this just this week, the book came out this week. Um, I started getting dozens of emails from people who knew me back then when I was a child saying, oh, we knew he was a pedophile. Our moms told us to stay away from him. My mom told the administration they didn't do anything. Um, He would make me sit on his lap and undo my things, and I was very uncomfortable. So basically everyone knew for 20 years that this guy was a pedophile, and nobody ever did anything about it. Wow. That's 
And, and, and one of my former teachers from when I was about nine years old wrote to me and said, I knew. I tried for three years. I kept telling everyone, um, but the administration didn't want to do anything about it. Uh, wow. Yeah. And it's, if this was just my circumstance, that would be awful. It's not just my circumstance. We know that this is what happened with the Catholic priests. We know that this is what happened with Jerry Sandusky. Um, it's, it's, it seems like it's probably happening with this gymnastics um, doctor, U.S. gymnastics yeah. team doctor. It just goes to our natural inclination to be polite. To be polite and to deny atrocity. Whatever the atrocity is, it is the human nature to deny that it exists. And so because they were not seeing it happen at your home, they were able to say this is not happening? You know, it's, it's so interesting. Um, in the Jerry Sandusky case, a guy saw Jerry Sandusky naked in a shower with a little boy. He reported it to the administration. And the administration, in their defense, they've all been found guilty now, <laughs> um, said, but they, he never said it was sexual. This is part of the problem. In this case, we're going to have to go in innuendo a little bit yeah. and, and, and implicit knowledge, right? If a grown man is in a shower with a little boy, we should probably think something's going on there. Yes. Yeah. What do we need to see exactly before we know it's happening? Wow. Um, and, I, and I get crazy with, the, you know, there's such a thing about not wanting to, um, everyone's innocent until proven guilty. But how many times does there need to be smoke before we just believe there's fire? Michael Jackson comes to mind. Yeah, you name him twice in the book. Yeah. I mean, how many, how many people can come forward and say something? Uh, a guy gets on TV and says, um, the best thing, the most loving thing you can do is share your bed with someone, meaning a young boy. There's a problem there. Can I say for absolute certain? No, I never saw him do anything. I don't know him. I didn't know him. But at some point, any sane person needs to go, hmm, something's probably going on here. It, it's also like if if you wake up one morning and there's snow on the ground, mm -hmm. you know it snowed, but you didn't actually ever see it snow. What a beautiful metaphor. Yes. I stole that from somebody else. <laughs> Not about your situation, exactly. Right, right. But um, it's like these things, they add up. Exactly. And that's what happened to me in my situation. And, and it's, it's staggering to me. You know, I was a little girl. I didn't know all of this when I was going through it. But to have people now say, we all knew. We're not surprised. So for like the teacher that said she's new for three years, mm -hmm. what happened? Did she so tell the principal? Like, what she happened told there? the administration, the principal, or the, I don't know who, but she said she told the administration and they said that they weren't going to do anything about it. And if she wanted to do something, she would have to call, um, you know, CSA, whatever that is, Child Protective Services. And it wasn't confidential. And she worried that it would make it uncomfortable for her to be in a situation with a coworker who was my stepfather. And so she didn't do it. Wow. Um, I don't blame her for that. Um, uh, I, I, I get it. It's hard. It's hard. It's just these kids cannot advocate for themselves. You were not able to. Correct. And also we cannot expect the victims to right. do that. Right. Um, it's true of domestic abuse victims, by the way, too. And that's why, I, I don't know if it's in every state, but in California, they changed the law. You, domestic abuse victims, um, you know, battered spouses, are not going to step forward and say, I want to press charges. They're too afraid. They're too brainwashed and afraid. And so the laws in California changed so that they don't need to step forward anymore. The person gets charged um, without the spouse bringing up charges. 
Oh, that's a that's step. the law in in this state. Oh wow, California, very progressive. Yes, very it happy is. Happy to live here. It is. Do you think it's a disservice then that we hear about so many people getting kidnapped by strangers when it often ha- times happens to like a family member or an acquaintance? It is stranger danger, is what we call it. Yeah, is is a myth. The chances that your child is going to get abducted from a stranger are less than them getting hit by lightning. Take that into account. It's about, I believe it's about three times more likely that your child will be hit by lightning than abducted by a stranger. That's wild. It is so rare. And so, but every parent, I'm a parent, every parent focuses on that terror because it's so terrifying to think of that. Meanwhile, they're sticking their kids in all these daycares with not a thought to the fact that that is probably where the predators are. Yeah. And I'm not saying be afraid of daycare, but I'm saying be aware. Yeah. Also, like the distinction between um, people who molest and people who are pedophiles, Mm -hmm. um, that molesting can happen just from like opportunity arising. Yes. Um, Did you read that in an article I wrote? I can't remember. Yeah. (laughs) I know I put that in an article somewhere, but it's not in the book. But yes, um, there is a distinction. A pedophile is someone who has a sexual predilection to children. Um, And not every pedophile will molest children. Some have self-control. You know, they may have the fantasies and the, and the desire, but they may not do it. Child molesters, as anyone who molests children, there are lots of people who molest children just because the opportunity is there. Some, you know, cousin gets to watch the little daughter and just thinks, okay, yeah, I'll do this. This is easy. Um, the laws, the, the big deal that we're now making and the laws that are in place that make it a big deal to molest children now. Yeah. I think that has really helped with people who are, are not pedophiles to, to think twice about it because gotcha. there are big consequences. I think thinking about pedophilia and pedophiles, um, it, I don't know how to think about it because, tell me this, if this sounds weird, the main issue is consent. These are people who have power over kids and the kid right. is not able to say, well, they're not able to consent either way. Um, taking that factor out... Mm-hmm. It becomes a sexual attraction that mm-hmm. society is saying is wrong. Mm-hmm. And not too long ago, the people that we are attracted to, yeah. it was also told wrong. Mm-hmm. You make a really valid point there. And it really is about consent. Look, people have the sexual attractions that they have. And I don't want to demonize anyone for that. Um, the problem comes in in that, again, the way that kids are molested, we think of kids as being raped basically some stranger comes in and forcibly that's not how it happens child molesters and pedophiles groom their victims so they don't see it as them not having consent they think they're having a romantic relationship with the nine-year-old or the ten-year-old i saw this with my own stepfather over and over again he thought he was in a romantic relationship with them and he believed that they wanted this and very often the kids believe it too they become inc- incredibly attached to the people abusing them. Yeah. They don't see it as abuse. Only later, and then they're very confused and they feel very guilty because they say, why did I let him do that to me? Without understanding that they were manipulated and conned. Absolutely. Uh, at one point, he uh, moves on to another girl named Charlotte in the book. Is that somebody you have like a connection with or like have like, talked um, about? It's uh, Madeline um, oh, in the me, book. Madeline, Madeline yeah. Yes. That um, is actually that every character in the book... Uh, 
who's a victim or many of the characters, I use different names. Of, of course. And this particular person is several of his victims that I put together. Okay. I see. I didn't, um, there was just the quantity. Yes. Was, uh, and that's why I had to make them into one. Um, he had so many, sorry, so many um, victims all the time. He was, I, I have a chapter in the book called The Pied Piper. He was surrounded by kids all the time, which is why now everyone's saying, oh yeah, we knew he was a pedophile. <laughs> and if you read about Jerry Sandusky, constantly surrounded by kids. Wow. It's like, just speak it, up, speak up. It's, it's, wake up. Wake up, everybody. Wow. Get your head out of the sand. <laughs> With the multiple personalities, it, it, uh, it's Multiple personalities and dissociative identity disorder. They, are the two names for one or is just one? The yes, su- it used, it used to be called multiple personality disorder. Okay. And they changed it to dissociative identity disorder um, because now they understand how it happens. Oh, okay. It's, it's dissociation is something that happens to everybody. We do it every day. When you daydream, you're dissociating. You're basically, it's a mental vacation. I think you had a great example in the book, which is when you're driving and mm-hmm. you pass your exit, and you're like, oh, but I'm awake. Right. I just missed right. my exit. It's like your mind's somewhere else, but your body's doing this. So you basically, your consciousness is split. Yeah. That's dissociation. So everybody does it every day. When we're afraid, we do it very naturally. Um, if you get into anybody who's ever been in any sort of accident, almost everyone will say, oh, it was surreal. And I remember it, it was like in slow motion. That's because you're dissociating. Your consciousness is splitting. You're not able to remember things the right way. And so I was being terrorized and raped and tortured. And my mind was constantly doing that. Is that something that you, it's still, I I don't want to ask a dumb question. Is that something that's still a struggle every day? No. I don't dissociate anymore, meaning I'm always here. I remember everything that happens. Um, I, am I aware that there are other personalities inside of me? Yes, yes. That hasn't completely gone away. Okay. But uh, I, feel, I feel pretty much like one person. When you're doing work on yourself to get this Michelle to like at f- the forward facing, mm-hmm. <laughs> the one, how do you know that is the quote unquote like correct Michelle? That's such a great question. And and that's one of the hardest things, right? Because what we do, um, I think we all do this, but in, in dissociative identity disorder, you do it to extremes. There are parts of me that I don't want to know I have. Um, and so part of, part of the work is accepting uh, the parts of you that you don't particularly like or agree with. It's, it's, an, it's an odd process. Everybody has it to an extent, yeah. but I had it to a great extreme. Yeah, whereas, like, I go to a party and I'm acting fun and I, like, mm-hmm. am able to, like, literally, like, flick a switch and turn it on. Mm-hmm. That's still me, though. Right. It's not a different person. Right. And and, and exactly. And uh, I, I talk about this, too. It, you know, the way we are in the bedroom and the way we are at work and the way we are with our friends is all different. And that's very well, much what it is. you've never seen me in the bedroom. Well, Just and I probably <laughs> never will. Uh, <laughs> we'll see how that there we go. Um, I'm kidding. Sometimes. Yes, I know, I know. Um, um, but it, it's, with DID, it's about memory. The dissociation is so bad that for years, when one of my personalities was out, the others don't remember what that personality did. Oh, wow. And so, so much of the work is regaining, you know, we hear about repressed memories. What that is, is remembering what all the different personalities were doing. When you had these memories come to you, they often came in complete sentences. I am a lesbian. Mm-hmm. My father molested me. <laughs> These, is that common to have it that clear and concise? I have no idea. Um, I really don't. I don't know about the experiences of other people with this disorder. But yes, I have had these 
amazing epiphanies in my life. That is so um, funny. Yes, the the one in the book that you're talking about, I was, you know, I had been with a, all my life I thought I was straight. I had been with a guy for seven years that we were going to get married, and I'm driving down the 101, I get off on an exit, and I thought, you're gay, today you're going to deal with it. And that was that, and I was gay from that day on, and yeah. That is so funny. Yeah, so I don't know if other people's minds work like that, that's how mine works. Yeah, it, but in a lovely tribute that you took his last name, or his first name as your last name. Yes, I did, yeah, my, he's still my best friend in the world, I adore him. Also, spoiler alert, he's uh, also gay. Oh, you ruined one of the best did chapters. I really? <laughs> Stop it. Yes, he is. Um, yeah. That's so funny. Yeah. I, is So... Besides your family and your close friends, is this the first time that you've like revealed this much about yourself? Nobody knew. Really? Nobody knew. Except for my very closest friends. Um, uh, no one knew about the abuse. No one knew that I had mental illness. Wow. Um, you know, I, I've been in, in and out of mental hospitals. Nobody knew. I remember one time I went to do a stay in a mental hospital and I didn't show up to some, you know, dinner with friends and everyone thought that my wife and I must be getting a divorce because I wasn't there. But it's no, I was just in a mental hospital. Wow. (laughs) So I've had people had a lot of different reactions. You know, um, I was terrified because it's so much like coming out. Right. Um, And coming out for me was pretty easy. This was my coming out where I'm so terrified of what everybody's going to think and they're going to see me differently. And so I was sort of... um, uh, took the easy way out and did everything on social media. Really? <laughs> so uh, all my friends sort of found out everything about me on social media. That's funny. So that way I didn't have to deal with the weird looks. That's easier. Yes. I think that the, like, the issue that I would have is that some people are not able to discuss certain things. Not that you would want to have this discussion at every day. Yeah. But um, I wouldn't want... To t- like, I... My, my One of my roommates, um, her mom passed away a couple years ago, and the amount that people bring it up, it just blows my mind. Mm-hmm. So I'd hate to be like, invite you over for dinner. I wouldn't say, you know, this is Michelle, and this is everything she went through. Right, right. You yeah, know, or just it's like, awkward. This is Michelle. Yeah, yeah. And it is, um, yeah, it's just awkward. We're not used to being like that in social situations. And I also don't want to be defined by it, which seems odd since I just published a book about it. But, you know, I in my everyday life... I'm a wife and I'm a mom and I like musicals and, you know, this is not all of who I am. It's part of who I am. Yeah. Speaking of your wife, I I don't want to say that it was it was obviously not as hard as what you went through, but to have that kind of support couldn't have been easy on her end. Yeah. Um, And this is I'm so glad I'm talking to you because, you know, everyone I've talked to about this book, all they want to focus on is the abuse half of this book is really like right a lesbian love story yeah uh it's a it's a love letter to my wife this book 23 years 23 years we've been together and she has from the beginning um she really got all that i've been through all the struggles that i've had and she's been incredibly supportive um my wife and my best friend and later my therapist are, are really the reason i'm sitting here I don't think I could have gotten through and done so well without them. That's like my greatest blessing is my ability to pick great people. Yeah. But also this was a blind date. It was the only blind date I've ever been on. It's true. <laughs> that story is so funny. Could, I mean, can you mind Okay, so basically um, I had been dating. I decided I was a lesbian while driving on the freeway. And then I spent about two or three years dating around, doing the whole thing, really, really living it up. Um, and... 
I had gotten fed up with it all. And I looked up to God one day and I said, this is it. You've got to send me somebody. I, I can't, st- I'm not meeting the right people at Girl Bar. Please give me somebody. So the next day I go into work and I overhear a conversation in the next cubicle. And it's uh, my coworker. And she's saying her friend who I didn't know was on the phone and he had asked a girl out on a date. And my friend was saying, I'm so sorry that that girl that you liked, that you took on a date, turns out to be a lesbian. And I popped my head up and I said, lesbian? What lesbian? I want to meet the lesbian. And this is how I got set up to meet my wife. And that's the lesbian. <laughs> that's the lesbian. God, you knew nothing about her. Nothing about her. And she tried to, um, she had tickets to a Sarah McLaughlin concert. How that lesbian is, is that? And uh, who I didn't know who that was. I lied and said I did. And... <laughs> and um, you know, she, she, these were expensive tickets. So she kept trying to like get me on the phone to talk to me and find out if I was worth it or meet for coffee. I, I wanted none of that. So I told her I was out of town. So basically she just showed up at my door for this date and we were together ever since. That is amazing. Yeah. Wow. Um, tell me if this is too personal, but after. So- yes. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. After so much uh, sexual trauma early on, are you able to enjoy sex today? You know, it's a struggle. Yeah. I mean, yes. But, um, yeah, anybody who goes through, I think, sexual abuse is going to have a lot of work to do to um, heal sexually. Yeah. And now, how old is your son? Our son just turned 12. Oh, wow. Yeah. So how much does he know? And I want to know, like, when do you think you'll start, like, having that conversation with him? Yeah, we've had to kind of start it. Um, He knows that I was abused as a child. And he doesn't really, he's a pretty young 12-year-old, so he doesn't really get sexual things anyway, um, nor would you want to when it's your mother. So he knows that I was abused. Okay. And at some point, we had to tell him about the multiple personality thing, um, which is very hard. There's such a stigma. And he, he overheard it somewhere, and he looked at me, and he said, do you have multiple personalities? Like, you know, I'm a freak of some sort, which people act like that. And I, you know, and I said, like, where did you hear about that? He's like, I don't know. It was on my cartoon. Well, it's just been all over the media with that recent and like mm-hmm. Shyamalan movie, yes. too. Yes. With Split. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not like that. It's not like that at all. Um, yeah. So that's a testament to how much it's not like that, that my son had no idea I have that disorder. Yeah. Um, so he know he knows I have it, but it doesn't mean anything to him because I'm just mom. Yeah. I guess it's probably healthier too to know you have it and then to like learn more details as opposed to at 18 being like, by the way, I need to tell you something. Oh, my child is a lie. lie. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I have two moms and one's. Right, right, right. Oh, wow. I think it's so impressive too that your belief in God did not wane. Yes, it's never waned, actually. I thought he had it in for me for a long time. Um, it appeared that way. Yeah, it really appeared that way. I really thought he had it in for me. And then I talk about this in the book, as you know. I, um, I've always had a really strong sense of spirituality, of there being something else. And for a long time, I thought, well, you know, God has forsaken me. I don't know what I did, but life really sucks. Um, and then things started to turn around you know, really wonderful people started to appear in my life and things started to get better and better. And at this point, I'm really in a place of almost seeing everything that happened to me in a spiritual way of saying, thank God it happened because it, it made me empathetic. It made me, um, have this desire to help other people. Yeah. You know, it gave me my purpose in life. And how wonderful is that? 
Yeah. And and that is why you, I to put word in your mouth, like feel you had to write this book. Is yes. that not right? Yeah. And that, that was a big deal because, you know, if you, this book is very honest. And once a book like this comes out and you decide you're going to do press for the book, um, there's no taking that back ever. For na- from now on, I am the person who was horribly sexually abused and had multiple personalities and all of this. So I had to make a choice that I was wanted to do that. And I did it because I really fervently believed that other people needed to hear what's in this book. Yeah. Um, and I've, my God, it's been a week and I've gotten hundreds and hundreds of messages and emails and everything else from survivors, people who know survivors, people who work with survivors saying, you've explained it all. So, and I knew I could, I just knew I could explain it all in a way that no one had ever explained it. Yeah. I think it goes with the fact too, that like we need to talk about these kinds of things that like without it being out in the world, then people will remain silent. Right. Those, these teachers who said nothing, mm-hmm. these principals and these, right. the parents of kids. Right. It's easier to stick up when they know like, yeah. and it's happening. And it's look, I don't want to blame people for that. It's the natural way. If you don't have someone like me standing up and saying, it's all real. What you're suspecting that you don't want to say because it's not polite to say and you, you've been taught you shouldn't say anything. No, it's real. Believe it. Stand up for someone. Um, telling so many survivors um, write to me and they're saying, my God, I didn't realize how much it affected me. That's the other thing. People will know that it happened to them, but they do not make the link between what being abused does to you and, and how it affects you in adult life. Yeah. I mean, it would, it, it would. I even thought, too, like, you moved to New York, you got out of the house away mm-hmm. from your stepfather, and it's like, yay, happy ending, and that's in the middle of the book. Correct. Correct. And, you know, Holocaust survivors in droves after getting out, years after, commit suicide. That should tell you something. Getting over... Uh, do, do men come back from war and just resume their life happy, happy? We don't expect that, do we? No. No, we do not expect that you go to war, you see all these horrible, traumatic things, and you come home and you're fine. So why would we think that you would have a childhood of abuse or abandonment or neglect and just grow up and be fine? Yeah. I think, too, though, like, because you were living with your wife and able to quit work for a while and, like, mm-hmm. deal with these issues, I... Like, the people who don't have that support system, do they just become homeless? Sometimes. And, you know, yes, I was incredibly blessed that um, eventually, you know, I I married someone who was able to support me through my healing. I I am. I was just really, really blessed that way. Um, However, I don't, I reject the victim of circumstance mentality. I had someone just write to me yesterday and say, I have I found a therapist that I like, but I don't have insurance for them and they cost a lot and I have a job but I can't afford it. What should I do? Right? This is a very common thing. And my answer was this, if you value you, go get a second job to afford it. I know that sucks. I know it's not fair. You shouldn't have to get a second job to afford therapy um to heal from something that somebody did to you. Yeah. It's completely unfair and yet it's the thing that you should do. Yes. Do whatever you can do to heal. Yeah. And another big lesson from the book, if that therapist is not working, pick a new Move one. Move on. Move on. There are a lot of bad therapists in the world, and there are also a lot of there are bad fits mm-hmm. for people. There's a lot of bad everything in the world. There's bad dentists. There's bad doctors. There's bad therapists. 
I There's think, bad lawyers. I know. I think that, like the conception though that these people are like communication experts and human like human mm-hmm. experts that they would be for themselves even too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's not true. Uh, <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, look, there are many wonderful therapists, and there are different fits. I think that someone that I might think is a terrible therapist, someone else might really respond to. Yeah. Um, I know as a therapist myself, I'm not for everyone. And the people who choose me would not choose the therapist that I choose. We have very different styles of working. So it's about finding the right fit. And the most important thing, most important, you must find someone that is trustworthy, meaning that they follow every boundary, that they're incredibly reliable, just like any relationship, if there's no trust, there's nothing. Yeah. So that's the first rule. And then you have to genuinely feel like there's a relationship there. To be an armchair psychiatrist right now, yes. I have a question. Do you think that there is any validity the, to the connection that some people listening are making and that I wonder of like, you were sexually assaulted by all these men growing up and now you're a lesbian? Like, Is there any connection with that? You know, I don't think so, um, honestly, because um, to be quite frank, uh, I have a personality that is not a lesbian. <laughs> so I, I would say that probably my my sexual proclivity is probably to be bi. Okay. Um, obviously, I've been married 23 years, so that's not an option for me. But um, no, I don't think that that has anything to do with it. it okay. Just like being gay. Yeah, I, I think you just are what. Well, it is being gay. Uh, <laughs> you are what you are. It's just such an easy connection that I wanted to yeah, ask. Yeah. Too. No, and it's an obvious question, um, but no, I actually don't think it has any effect. Okay, and then I know I got to let you go soon, but the, it was not easy getting to this point where you're okay now. Yeah. But I think too, like the fact that um, I was reading a lot about post traumatic growth. Mm-hmm. And um, I read Bouncing Forward with uh-huh. Kayla Haas. Mm-hmm. Just, um, I think the larger percentage of people suffer something traumatic, and then they're able to bounce forward and thrive. Yes. There's a lot of research now on the fact that a certain amount of adversity is actually quite good for you. Um, you know, I had sort of crushing adversity. Yes. Um, but, you know, we live in an insta-culture, right? Where everything, everyone thinks everything should be insta. And... Part of what I was trying to say in this book is it's not Insta. This was a very, very long and hard journey for me that took years and years and years and years. It got me where I needed to be. It made me a really strong person. But these things take time and they take determination. And um, yeah, that's really what I wanted to impart to people. You can't just say, well, well, I tried that. Uh, I guess I'm, you know, I give up. No, don't give up. Don't ever give up. Yes, and even though people in the, like the professionals you hire are telling you that it's not looking good, you had so many people that told you like you're never going to get over this, and it baffled me. Um, and and I I have had clients come to me who other therapists have told them that I'm getting emails from people who therapists. No, that's not true. That that means that they are not able to help you, not that you are not able to be helped. Yeah. So if those people are not giving good advice, like what do you say to the victims out there who like need help? What I say to people, to anyone who needs to overcome anything, number one, make a decision that you're going to do that. You really just, you can't be wishy-washy about this. You need to say, I, ha- I have trouble and whatever it takes, however long it takes, whatever I got to do, I'm going to figure this out. And, you know, 
we can't achieve anything if we don't have a goal to achieve it. <laughs> and once we make that goal, then you have to move forward. And, and you know, it's about grit and resilience. Yeah. Um, I think that's such a nice place to leave it. After the book tour, what is next on your agenda? I right now am um, actually I just got uh, an offer to develop uh, and host a television show. Oh, wow. So that is what I'm working on right now. Cool. Good luck with that. Thank you. And so Scared Selfless is in stores. If they want to check you out, send them to your website. Yeah, sure. MichelleStevensPhD.com. Fantastic. All right. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. It's great to meet you. Yeah, thanks. And I'm on Twitter at JeffMasters1. You can also find all of our other interviews on iTunes or YouTube. If you really want to help us out, please subscribe and leave a comment on iTunes. It's a big help. We'll see you next week. Goodbye. From executive producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire AfterBuzz TV staff, we would like to thank you for listening to the AfterBuzz TV network. To watch or listen to other After shows and post comments or questions, be sure to visit AfterBuzzTV.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of AfterBuzz TV. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals. 